Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern and as always here on Close Reads, I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Flipped, flipped it back for you there, Angelina. How's that? Phew! I was, I was saying a prayer while you were talking, really. <laughs> well, that <laughs> prayer came true. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> he does answer prayers. Um, <laughs> Tim, how's it going? Great. David, how are you doing? I heard you're a little under the weather. Yeah, I'm fighting something. Fighting something. What are you fighting? Going around? Well, my family, the week I was in Cincinnati, everybody at home had like stomach bug type stuff. I don't have that. I've just got like, I don't know, fighting, you know, like just where you, you're just like achy all over and it's like not one specific thing. Like, you know, my head kind of hurts. I don't feel like I want to eat. Like, you know how it's like that where you just don't feel like you can't pin it on one specific no, thing, but you're I, achy and you're like way. sore and yeah. It's all that rain we got, and then I just felt all headachy and not right. Yeah, and I think the uh, I I have a lot of like sinus issues, so the, we have these crazy rainstorms come through, and like the pollen's crazy and all that. So, <clears throat> well, the good news is um, we'll feel a lot better about ourselves after a withering cross examination from the cross from the close reads readership. <laughs> yeah, ex- just, exactly. Oh. That's yeah. just going to turn it around. Not me. I'm pleading the fifth through this whole thing, so get ready, Timbo. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's I'll all you. Prepared. I'll be prepared to punt to David. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of offense in this game. There's going to be a lot of reverse reverse handoffs over here, right? Uh, right. A lot, of, a lot of bouncing it outside and going to the side, going out of bounds. Um, there you go. All, anybody who doesn't like football has no idea what we're talking about right now. So. Um. So we are, yeah, we're here to answer questions. This is actually going to be our last Flannery O'Connor episode, at least you know for a while. I'm sure we'll come back one day and either do a different collection I'm or one, one of the novels or something. I am too. You guys said I'm sad. Absolutely. I'm so glad we did this. Like I, I, I loved Flannery O'Connor twenty something years ago when I read her, and it was always talked about his perpetual cue last week. She was always on my perpetual cue. Like I really should make some time to get back to those which you know i never did so i'm just i'm really glad i'm glad that we we went through these again i enjoyed it so much so we do have a lot of questions here people didn't really seem to ask questions about specific stories so that plan kind of goes out the window uh i was thinking of you know answering you know selecting one of from each from each particular story but then people really wanted their questions asked they didn't follow the rules because they knew that if they asked one there was more than one question about a story then it was only 50 50 chance so Maybe we should just skip this show. What do you think? They broke the rules. 
Yeah, I think there has hey. to be a penalty. Yeah. We I, believe in law and order. Hey guys, yeah, I, I agree. Is it is it is it my internet? Because David, like you're breaking up so bad. I'm like hearing every other word. Is this is this me? Am I the problem? I think it is. I think it is. Because you break up for me, and you broke up a little bit when you were speaking for like a uh, okay half a second. Okay, we, so we moved the router in, into a different room. But um, I did my class yesterday. Angelina never moved. it was fine. Well, that's you're dealing with Skype now. I mean, come on. I know. Never Skype move so the router, crazy. Angelina. Never move the router. <laughs> oh, so put it in a more central. It's actually closer to this room now. If you have not learned anything from Flannery O'Connor, <laughs> never move the router. You're one of my fans. You're right. That dark moment of grace that you've been <laughs> pounding me with for the last six weeks. Don't move the router. Yeah. You have a deci- router to put a bookcase there. That is the best reason. Yeah, well, then there was a reversal, and now you don't have internet. <laughs> oh, boy. So we are here, like I said, to answer some questions. Uh, before we do that, uh, I need to say a quick word from Roman Roads Media. If you are a regular listener, you know of them. They are publishers of classical Christian curriculum designed for homeschoolers and homeschool co-ops, and they're back with another giveaway for this episode. Each episode in April and May, they're giving away one of the 16 units from their Old Western Culture series, which stars Wes Callahan. That is a high school video course that guides you through the great books of Western civilization. There's workbooks, discussion questions, readers, and all that. And Wes Callahan draws from decades of teaching experience, and he's an amazing storyteller. So he integrates history, lit, theology, politics, all those things that he's interested in right into that one class. So if you want to it win one of their 16 units here's how you enter that giveaway when this episode is posted on the Cersei Facebook page leave a comment saying which unit of the old western culture you would choose if you win so on the main Cersei Facebook page when we post the link to this show leave a comment there and then head over to romanroadsmedia.com to browse their selection and choose one I like how on some of the different shows, the same people, if they didn't win, they're just constantly repeating the same one over and over again. So it's pretty clear that like certain people really want the medieval unit. Medieval lit unit. Oh, really? Um, and why wouldn't they? Yeah, well, it's true, true. Wes Callahan on medieval literature. But uh, th- I, I want to win it, but I just assumed we were you know, not in the running here. But I, I'm, you know, I'm totally ready to spam Wes's Facebook until I get some videos. <laughs> I don't know that Daniel and David stipulated that Tim and Angelina couldn't win. Oh, I don't know what the legal interest. Maybe there are, I don't know, legal issues. You're not technically Cersei staff members. You're not on payroll. Well, so it's true, we're not. Right. Maybe, maybe you're okay. Maybe you're okay. I don't know. What, but I mean, you know what? We could always find out. You could try it, <laughs> test out the water. I mean, maybe, maybe the whole thing will shut down when you actually type it in and hit enter. I don't know. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. The whole website. Or maybe. Flash. Yeah, I'll get a bunch of dislikes in response. People will be like, hey, you're cheating. <laughs> you set up this whole contest just so you could win. I'm like, yeah, yeah. The only reason I'm doing close reads is to get free Wes Hallahan videos. I mean, isn't that well, your reason, Tim? <laughs> we learned long ago that the only reason you're doing this is to get free stuff. So, um, <laughs> and frankly, that's the reason I asked you to do it to get free stuff. <laughs> uh, it's all a big conspiracy <laughs> for free stuff. Exactly. Exactly. There's no money in classical education. We have to do what we can. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, except that when Roman Roads Media sponsors. So thanks to Roman Roads Media for for doing that and making these shows possible. Um, our sponsors really go a long way towards making it so we can just continue to create a lot of free content. Um, these podcasts take a lot of time, so the sponsors help you know cover payroll and the the expenses that go into it. There's different different kinds of um, monthly and recurring fees that go into producing podcasts. So they, they're really helpful as far as that goes. So thanks to them. Uh, thanks to their ongoing friendship. We're excited that they will be in Orlando with us uh, for the regional conference at the end of this month. There are a few seats left in that. 
Um, the numbers are a little lower than we expected, so people can go ahead over there and register. Um, and if you want to use coupon code Orlando, O-R-L-A-N-D-O, then you can save $25 on the registration if you want to join us. And Angelina will be speaking there. So if you want to meet Angelina in person, then go to Orlando and use that coupon code to save 25 bucks to do it. And, you know, I promise you won't be disappointed. Right, Angelina? Oh, of course not. I'll even let them take me out to dinner. See, I'm a good sport. Oh, <laughs> that is so kind. What if there's like, so what if 30 close readers show up though and ask to take you out to dinner each individually? Then we better get a, uh, we better reserve a room somewhere, <laughs> a banquet hall. Yeah, there you go. I'll make a grand entrance. I'll make it worth their while. You know I will. You'll read out loud. You'll do a performance. Absolutely. I do that regularly anyway without the offer of free I was going to so. say dinner with Angelina is always performance based. Um, so we are not here to make fun of Angelina too much. We are actually here to talk about Flannery O'Connor. Right, Tim? That's exactly tomato, right. Tomato, tomato. Okay. Yeah, well, sort of. <laughs> so um, we've got lots of questions. Uh, Angelina is going to punt on most of them. Um, we are going to have to... We're going to get to as many as we can. There are a lot, and some of them are going to demand a decent bit of conversation. And then I do have a few... Um, if we if we have time, I'm going to do a few rapid fire questions um, that we can we rapid can, fire we can rapid, include in rapid, there. Rapid fire, yeah, like that exactly. So um, yes, no, yes, no, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and we're out. Yeah. Bye. Symbol, not a symbol. <laughs> Allegory. Just a black hat. Just a black hat. <laughs> well, let's let's start with this one. I think this is a good one to start with because it's not terribly complicated if if we actually know what we're talking about. Uh, Diana asks. Now that I've read a couple of O'Connor books, I'd like to hear more about how her contemporaries viewed her and her writing, which she considered creepy, grotesque, and haunted in her day. Typically, I think of historic... Uh, <laughs> horrific, not historic. Typically, I think of horrific stories coming from twisted, wandering minds, but she apparently was very staunch and decided in her Catholic beliefs. Um, end question. I suppose Diana's implying there that, um, therefore, she does not have a twisted, wandering mind. Um, what do you what do you guys know about that about how she was received in her own time either fellow writers or by you know the contemporary just the, the reading public do you know anything about that Okay, so while I was reading that first question there, Angelina disappeared from the internet, like we said. She she broke the first rule. She didn't follow Flannery's advice. She moved her modem, and now she has to be on the phone. So, Angelina, welcome back via the phone. Oh, wait, did we say via or via? I can't remember what we decided on. Welcome back on the phone. <laughs> Thank you. I'm live via traffic helicopter. <laughs> That's what I feel like. <laughs> so it sounds a li- There's a real jam up here on I-85, guys. <laughs> you have the live, the live scouting report for us. Um, so the question was, uh, Angelina, as I, I was just reading it, it's from Diana, and she asks what contemporaries thought of O'Connor. Do you know what contemporaries thought of her... Um, was she considered creepy or grotesque or haunted in her own day? And that's either from contemporary authors um, like herself or the reading public. What do you know about that? Either of you? Um, What I know about that is that Russell Kirk was a great admirer of hers. And uh, he, he saw in her a kindred spirit to what he was trying to do. He, he totally recognized that she was fighting modernity um, and that she was trying to turn back the tide of, of the culture and, and was a big fan. I think I already told the story on this show about how Russell Kirk was also friends with T.S. Eliot. And so he thought T.S. Eliot and Flannery O'Connor were trying to do the same thing. He actually tried to get them to meet. But uh, Eliot was not a fan. 
Elliot was uh, He's too so, British. So Elliot thought, well, yeah, I mean, she was too a little shock and awe for him, I think. Which is weird. <laughs> it is weird to me. So that's literally all I know is that um, uh, certainly at least some of her contemporaries were able to completely identify what she was doing as, as fighting against the culture. Hey, Angelina, I'm not, I don't know that all of our readers will know who Russell Kirk is. Maybe I'm. Maybe I don't know our readers well enough. Could you tell us who the, who he is? Uh, Russell Kirk was um, kind of one of the first people to give an intellectual defense of conservatism in the modern era. Would you say that's right? I mean, I'm not sure how to describe him. No, I think that's a great description. And he also was. Um, he wrote mystery stories. He wrote. Uh, I think he wrote some plays. And he, you know, he's wrote many books that we. Um, care about here at Cersei. And obviously our... Yeah, the Russell Kirk Pie Day Prize, our annual prize we give for a lifetime contribution to classical education. Um, another thing about O'Connor is... And, and his widow, his widow came to the conference last year. Right, yep, yep. Um, she, you know, her letters, um, The Habit of Being, include a pretty wide correspondence um, with many other writers. So she was friends with, for example, Robert Lowell and Elizabeth Bishop, many English professors, um, some playwrights. Um, and Caroline Gordon too, right? Right, yeah. Um, so she was, you know, not everyone understood her. There were certainly people who didn't like her, is my understanding. I know that she and, um, or at least, I guess I shouldn't say I know, but my understanding rather is that she and Carson McCullers, who wrote the, the what The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, um, Mm-hmm. They were not. They did not like each other, and O'Connor did not care really? for that. Did not care for that book, is my understanding. But they also attended school together in upstate New York before uh, Flannery O'Connor went to the Iowa Writers Workshop. As a young writer, they were they were in the same courses together. Is is what I understand, and I didn't do any research to confirm that ahead of time. So if I'm wrong, you know, oh well. Did you ever, ever hear the story about when Flannery O'Connor attended the party with? Um Carson McCullers and Carson McCullers made a comment about the Eucharist. Did you ever hear this story? No, but I want to hear this story. <laughs> Apparently Carson McCullers was kind of holding court and talking to some of the party goers. And she said, was she a believer? Was she a believer? I don't think so. And that'll become okay, clear in, so. the, in the comment. She said something to the effect of, well, I suppose as far as, I suppose as far as symbols go, the Eucharist is an adequate symbol or something like that kind of, kind of flippantly. And I don't think Bill Connor said it to her face, but maybe said it later in private correspondence. Well, if it's merely a symbol, then it's not worth a damn. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, right on Flannery. <laughs> so O'Connor, when she was at the university of Iowa, in the, the writer's workshop, which is the single most prestigious, you know, uh, post-grad program on fiction writing. Um, she originally went to study journalism, but while she was there, she got to know people like Robert Penn Warren, John Crow Ransom, Austin Warren, and Andrew Lytle. And Andrew Lytle, who was one of the Southern agrarians, along with John Crow Ransom, if I'm not mistaken, uh, he was the editor of the Sewanee Review. And when she was in college, he was an, a, a big admirer of her fiction, as was Robert Penn Warren. And he published a lot of her stories in the Sewanee Review, which is still going. Um, 
and was uh, was a instrumental in getting her work out to a wider audience. So um, between all the different authors that she knew and she brushed shoulders with and you know had meals with and worked with in community, um, she uh, sh- she had a pretty wide you know, in her, in her short life, she had a pretty wide circle of influence. And I think that that's one of the big reasons why her work became popular pretty quickly. And also the way they have stayed popular, you know, like not that long after she died. Um, well, when did she die again? Uh, 1964. Yeah. 64. So less than 10 years after that, her complete stories won the national book award for fiction. And so, you know, they're, they're definitely, yeah. it's not like she's one of those authors who was not popular in her life and then later on became popular or, or didn't know her own success. You know, like pe- people like Fitzgerald, like they thought they died of failures and stuff like that. Um, she definitely, I don't think she was, should be included in that uh, category of a writer. You know, that, that being said, I've mentioned it in one of the early podcasts about O'Connor that she, late in her life, felt like she was writing for posterity more than writing for the present mm-hmm. i think when she knew that she was not going to survive lupus she according to the biography i mentioned by paul ellie the life you saved might be your own, maybe your own. Mm-hmm. um it sounds like she kind of went through a kind of internal change in which she was resigned that lupus was going to claim her life and that she was now writing for people that she would only really be fully enjoyed after her death so I think you're right, David. She has a correspondence with a wide variety of people. Eight years after her death, the collected stories win the National Book Award. So she she catches on relatively quickly, and she has a good correspondence with other established writers. Um, but it doesn't seem like she had the sort of popularity that somebody like Hemingway had. Hemingway was popular during his own life. And he got um, very rich. And he got very rich. Yeah. And he lived a relatively long life, especially compared to O'Connor. So she was, she did not live that sort of life. Yeah. During her life, her work, you know, there's something to be said for an author having a canon that can be kind of experienced and responded to. And that canon came together, at least, you know, for public consumption after her death. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it was several years before all those collect, like even this collection that we just read, it came out after her her death. So, you know, uh, people would read them here and there in magazines or journals because short stories at the time were quite popular. You'd read them in the New Yorker, or the Sewanee Review, or the Atlantic Monthly, or whatever it was, um, the Saturday Evening Post. But it was several years until she, that full canon came out, and there was able to be a kind of a a judgment on the, her work as a whole, and. Um, especially for a short story writer who died young, I think that that kind of diminished a little bit the way, uh, the opportunity to have a complete response to her, to her whole yep. canon of work. Do you, uh, another question that came up is related to this. And I think it's at least worth, worth touching on. And we already have a little bit, but Jessica asks if, um, how her writing fit into the broader scope of literature at the time, was she just completely out there on her own or were there other, were there ideas or themes that she shared with other writers of her time? So I guess by writers of her time, we're talking, you know, uh, say 40s and 50s um, Angelina you know literature from that era pretty well I mean both of you do but Angelina I'll ask you that one first who would you consider to be writers her contemporaries who shared similar um, themes and interests well I actually don't know that time period super well um, 
I kind of grouped her in my mind with the Catholic Renaissance writers. I mean, is that what you would say? So, you know, Evelyn Waugh and Graham Greene and um, would Walker Percy be in that? I think so, for sure. Well, okay, Tim, so, I'll yeah, ask you then. <laughs> so I, I think I, but, I, but from what I remember, from what I understand in my one class I took on modern British literature, there was a Catholic Renaissance going on at that time, right? Mm-hmm. Of writers. That's right. And that, the biography that I just mentioned, The Life You Say Might Be Your Own, um, it's about four Catholic writers. It's Flannery O'Connor, Dorothy Day, who is not a novelist, mm-hmm. um, but was still a prominent Catholic social... Journalist, uh, right? Yeah, more of a journalist and a social activist. Walker Percy, who Angelina just mentioned, who was a Southern... Um, Catholic existentialist. He was a he was trained as a doctor. He reads. A, I really like Walker Percy. He one day we're definitely going to read Walker Percy on the show. We have to. Yeah, we should. And they have um, that Walker Percy festival in St. Francisville. Right in San Francisco, Francisco, Louisiana. Yeah, Rod, Rod Dreher kind of started that or was involved in. Yeah, some of yeah, that. that's that's his thing. Yeah, I'm just and saying we go down is, there. Um, do an episode. The last one is Thomas Merton, the oh, right. who, oh right, right. Now he was a huge admirer of Flannery O'Connor. Right? Yeah, yeah, they, they admired each other. Yeah, they were friends. They wrote lots of letters. And so, right. so she she's friends. She's exchanging letters. I think she exchanged letters with Percy. I don't know about with Dorothy Day, but she's part of that little conversation that's happening. And a lot of that. I mean, Percy. And Merton, Merton's not a Southerner, but he his um, Abbey is in Kentucky, I believe. Dorothy Day is in North Carolina. Excuse me, not North Carolina. She's in um, New York, I think, most of her life. So anyway, there's this small kind of renaissance of Catholic authors. Now, kind of like in the broader um, non-religious writing kind of, I don't know, stream of thought. Faulkner is kind of at the end of his career, right? And so he's a Southern yeah, he writer. Yeah, di- he died really in 62 and okay. was hugely influential to her, especially, uh, I was going to say, there's kind of two areas we can look at Look at her. Um, there's the one, there's, as you both have mentioned, the Catholic side of things. So there's kind of this, I mean, I've heard the, the Catholic Renaissance, Christian realism, that kind of stuff. But then there's also the... Mm-hmm the Southern Gothic side of her work. And so you can look at it from both perspectives. And if you're looking at the Southern Gothic and you want to look at her commentary in her stories um, on the passing away of a Southern way of life um, and so forth, then, and the effect of that on faith and on communities and on people, and then the sorts of characters she has also, you're looking at William Faulkner, you're looking at Harper Lee, you're looking at Cormac Cormac McCarthy, Carson McCullers, Walker Percy, Eudora Welty, um, like even, even someone like Tennessee Williams kind of falls into that category. Um, and you can look those up, like you can look up Southern Gothic lit on Wikipedia and there's a lot of stuff on there, like books to yeah. recommend and stuff like that. Um, you draw Welty, I think is a, is a good comparison, although not quite as, um, maybe dark as O'Connor. She's still Southern Gothic. And then of course, Fal- Faulkner is a little, little, little dark like her, but is, without the Catholic undertones. Would you put Catherine Ann Porter in there? Would you put Catherine Ann Porter in there? Is she at that huh. same time? Uh, I think she was at the same time, but I don't know. I've not, I don't know if I would. I don't know if she's considered Southern Gothic. Um, Catherine yeah, Ann, Catherine Ann I mean, Porter is good, though. I've read 
stories I've read by her have been kind of dark. Yeah, she's widely... The guilting of Granny Weatherall. Yeah, she's widely considered... She was married five times. She's widely considered the um, one of the greatest short story writers, you know, of the 20th century. Um, but I, she's not, you know, I, I mean, I, she's not listed under that on Wikipedia. I went and looked. Um, huh. So, for, for, for whatever that's for whatever okay, that's so worth. Okay, so while we're on this topic, why don't we consider Flannery O'Connor a Southern agrarian writer? I mean, she's like rubbing elbows with all of these guys, Alan Tate and Caroline Gordon and, and, and you know, Robert Penn Warren and John Ransom Crow, and she's like right in the middle of that, but why don't we put her in there? Is it, does she really suit the word agrarian? Well, I don't know. I mean, sure, sure. Her, a lot of her stories take place in an agrarian landscape, it, but it doesn't seem to me, maybe you guys see it differently, that a return to the land is a primary focus for her. And it does seem like the agrarian writers, a return to the land is a central focus. Okay. No, no. See, it was a legitimate question. I, I mean, I didn't know the answer. That sounds like a, a good answer, but she's, but she's somehow connected to them, right? I think she has to be. I mean, they were earlier, though. You know, like, didn't John Crow Ransom put out some of his essays, like, earlier in the 40s when she was quite a bit younger? Because if she died in, well, maybe earlier in her career, um, and I know Andrew Lytle and some of them lived a long time, but, you know, they're all responding to, like, H.L. Mencken and... and th- you know, these larger, these like cultural elite, elite attacks on Southern culture um, mm-hmm. and conservatism and religiosity um, and so forth. And like those well, people are valuing that, that group as... Of writers. Go ahead. I guess I'm thinking of those group of writers that came out of LSU, you know? Alan Tate and Caroline Gordon, they're all contemporaries of hers. And see, I was really... I, I never made the connection between her and the Southern Agrarians until um, my best friend wrote her dissertation on Caroline Gordon. And then when I ended up finding out the Caroline Gordon, so I knew all this stuff about Caroline Gordon. And then later on, when I found out that she was um, close friends with Flannery O'Connor, I was like, are you kidding me? I, I, just, I never put them together in my mind. They just seemed like they were such worlds apart. So that's kind of, I'm just thinking out loud. Yeah. What's the deal there? What's the connection? Well, the Southern Agrarians uh, wasn't, I'll, I'll take my stand was the name of their book, right? Um, yeah, yeah, and there's so there's kind of a specific group of people there because even even later on, Wendell Berry is kind of responding to that. He's a Southern agrarian as well, so I think she would fit into that. But the Southern agrarians is kind of like it's less of a lowercase s, lowercase a, and more of a you know there's an yeah, actual group of it, people. Um, I'm trying to look okay. and see who exactly wrote that, like who actually signed but their Robert names. Robert Lowell, he was in that too, wasn't he? So the twelve Southerners who signed "I'll Take My Stand," um, which was a def- which is a defense of the South and the agrarian tradition, were Ransom, Donald Davidson, Frank Lawrence, Owsley. It looks like John Gould, Fletcher, Lyle Lenyet. I can't read all these; it's kind of blurry. Alan Tate, Herman Nixon, Andrew Lytle, Robert Penn Warren, John Wade, Henry Klein, and Stark Young. Like those were the guys who actually signed it. And some of those are more right, popular and than Alan others. Right, Alan Tate was Caroline Gordon's husband. Right. Um, now, yeah, so well, I guess we could talk about this forever, but anyone that's interested, like you asked someone, she asked about the themes and things like that. Definitely the Catholic Renaissance writers and definitely the Southern agrarians would fit as contemporaries who were doing things similar to what she was doing, even if not exactly in the same vein. Um, and then, of course, um, you could, I think, make an argument that some of those pre-1950s uh, mystery writers 
um, we're doing similar things thematically as well. Um, and of course, mm-hmm. but the Graham Greene kind of doubles in that area because he wrote a lot of mystery stories as well. Um, but anyway, we um, th- those are great questions. Um, let's follow up with this one now. Who do you think, this is from Kelly, who do you think Flannery's intended audience was, Americans in general or Southern specifically? Do you think that, um, and she asked if we think that her stories are easier for Southern and rural people to get, or is it harder for us because she's definitely painting big, ugly, ugly close-ups of our sin and weaknesses? Mm. Um, and she has, a couple, she has a couple other questions that follow up on that, but I think that's a good place to start. So who, who I mean, Angelina, in reading any of her letters or Mystery and Manners, would you say that she comes out and says, this is who my audience is? You know, I don't know if she ever says it like that, but I certainly have the strong impression that her audience is meant to be non-Christians. Do you guys agree with that? Like, I've wondered if some of the problem that our, our listeners have had um, has been the fact that they're Christians. And what I mean by that is she she does talk about in her letters and her essays about how at this point she feels like the world is blind to the gospel, right? They're just, they just, they don't, they've hardened themselves to the gospel, right? And she says something like, to a group of deaf people, you have to yell, right? So she's yelling at them, whereas somebody who's already in the Christian tradition is going to be like, wow, you're really loud, <laughs> you know? Um, and and it, I wondered if that hasn't been a little bit of our problem as we've read her. Well, and it is interesting how over the years, so many uh, non-Christian writers have been influenced and inspired by her. Like Cormac McCarthy, yeah. for example, credits her as one of his favorites. Um, and I don't think he would, I don't think he's going to go down as, you know, as a Christian writer. Uh, um so what do you think the appeal is there? I know somebody had asked that question as well. Well, I think that speaks to what you're saying, though. First of all, she is a she is a, a craftsman. She has, right. like, you know, I took a lot of fiction writing, fiction writing courses in college. And she is someone that every professor is going to come back to, among, among a number, a handful of others, as just a quintessential craftswoman, I guess, of the short of short fiction, like the way she can craft a story and layer it with meanings, but also with vivid characters. Um, and, and also just, you know, it's got, it's got the language both in its dialogue and in its, in its, in its narrative, its narration. It's just so rich, so full of characterization, so colorful, so poetic in its own way. And so that's going to go a long way for people who are writers because, and it's going to make her influential because of that. Um, but I think there probably is something to that. Like you don't, you could probably read her stories and the first time in some of them, you don't necessarily come away with, come away from it saying this is a Christian writer who's, you know, evangelizing in her, in her work. Like you have to kind of linger in it before you come to that, uh, for a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And so if you're not trying to, you know, as Christians, we're coming to it like, wait, where's the redemption in this? That's our whole purpose right whereas some people might come to it and say this is a this is a thrilling example of a gothic story or something like that and but then as they read it and linger in it you know you can't get out of your head and when you can't get a story out of your head it's bound to work on you and be and last for a long time could i read something from um mystery and manners that doesn't touch directly on who she wrote for but i think might kind of cast a sideways light on who she's writing for would that be helpful yeah, go for sure. it. Sure. Um, 
we live in an unbelieving age, but one which is markedly. So this is from an essay called Novelist and Believer. It's in Mystery and Manners for prose writings. And so I think this is a talk that she gave. I could find out. Most, after I yeah, read it. most of those are. I believe they're like lectures she gave at colleges and um, such. It's Sweetbriar College in Virginia in 1963. So just before she died. Yeah. We live in an unbelieving age, but one which is marked, markedly and lopsidedly spiritual. There is one type of modern man who recognizes spirit in himself, but who fails to recognize a being outside himself, whom he can adore as creator and Lord. Consequently, he has become his own ultimate concern. He says with Swinburne, glory to man in the highest, for he is the master of things. Or with Steinbeck, in the end... Was the word, oh, excuse me, or with Steinbeck, in the end was the word, and the word was with men. For him, man has his own natural spirit of courage and dignity and pride and must consider it a point of honor to be satisfied with this. There's another type of modern man who recognizes a divine being not himself, but who does not believe that this can be known anagogically or defined dogmatically or received sacramentally. Spirit and matter are separated for him. Man wanders about, caught in a maze of guilt that he can't identify, trying to reach a God he can't approach, and a God powerless to approach him. And there is another type of modern man who can neither believe nor contain himself in unbelief, and who searches desperately, feeling about in all experience for the lost God. At its best, our age is an age of searchers and discoverers, and at its worst, it is an age that has domesticated despair and learned to live with it happily. The fiction which celebrates this last state will be the least likely to transcend its limitations. For when the religious need is banished successfully, it usually atrophies even in the novelist. The sense of mystery vanishes. A kind of reverse evolution takes place and the whole range of feeling is dulled. My hunch is that she's writing for those three types of men, those three types of reader, readers. Can you I, s- I, summarize summarize what those are for people who are just like you know follow, following along and doing other things at the same time? The first one thinks that um, there is a God out there. Um, that God is primarily a creator God. But there's something about man with his own natural spirit of courage and dignity um, that kind of, I don't know how to say it, is, is, can be, can approach God as a peer. There's another type of modern man, um, that also recognizes the divine being is not himself, but he doesn't believe that things can be defined dogmatically, sacramentally. In other words, the idea that like um, that the Bible might contain truths that can be put into dogmatic formulas, and I don't mean dogmatic in the negative way, I mean dogmatic in the kind of like... Um, firm, coherent articulation. 
that type of man thinks that um, he he doesn't think that God can be put into those sorts of statements or could be received through the sacraments. So that type of man is like feels guilty, feels like the weight of not um, being a morally perfect human being, but cannot like satisfy, cannot do anything about the guilt because God can't be approached. And God can't approach him. You almost like a deist. Yeah, it is kind of like a deist, isn't it? In there, you you the word anagog anagogically comes up, and Jesse asked a question, which I think is responding to part of this very passage. And she says um, that O'Connor mentions allegorical readings, tropological readings, tropological readings, mm-hmm. and anagogical mm-hmm. readings. And she asked for us to unpack this idea of anagogically. Can you, can um, either of you explore kind of what the difference is between an anagogical reading and allegorical reading? I can, I can try. This is, at Gutenberg, we're talking about the medieval world and trying to get across how the medievals thought about meaning as compared to the way that we think about meaning is so, (laughs) it is a hard task. So let me, maybe, can I start with how I think modern people, and again, I don't, I don't use modern people in this wholly derogatory way. You've probably heard me on this podcast. Um, I have a lot more, uh, hmm, Never mind. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to describe, um, what I think is the way that modern people make sense of things. So meaning always is contextual that means that like we don't say this tree is meaningful independent of the kind of like broader frame of reference that that tree inhabits so when i say if i if i say to you um what does a tree mean as a modern person that that question kind of doesn't make any sense because we don't know what context we're talking about, right? Like if I say, David, what does a tree mean? You're like, Tim, what are you talking about? That's kind of an idiot question. Because we don't know what the context is. But if, if David then responded and said, are you talking as an arborist? Are you talking as um, a biologist? Because if you're a biologist, the meaning of a tree is, and you could kind of give almost a scientific definition of what a tree is. And that scientific definition kind of puts the tree in the context of we're now having a a scientific discussion, and I can tell you what the meaning of the tree is. Maybe you can use its Latin name. You can tell me what kind of seeds it has, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the meaning of the tree would kind of be established. Now, if I said, David, what does a tree mean uh, in the Garden of Eden? We have now relocated the tree into a different context. That context is the beginning story of the Bible. Um, if it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that means something totally different than what is the meaning of the tree in a scientific context. So as moderns, we we need to know context in order to know what meaning what meaning follows. And these different contexts are, for the most part, like really unrelated to each other, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, very fragmented. Very, very fragmented. So the thing that's different about the medieval mind is that that those different contexts are all unified. So if mm-hmm. you think about it like um, context is a sheet of paper, and if you could draw a tree in the middle of the sheet of paper, and if you said within this sheet of paper, that sheet of paper represents the context of scientific discourse, or this sheet of paper with a tree in the middle of it represents the context of the Garden of Eden in the Bible. Those are examples of different kind of like frames of meaning. So what's different about the medieval mindset is that the context is not flat the way that it is for us, but think of it instead of a a sheet of paper, think of it as a three-dimensional cube. And all of the different meanings of the tree are all within that cube. And so the differences in understanding are understood in differences of sense. And anagogy is one of the different senses or the different kind of like interpretive lenses by which we view the tree. So, yes, and none of those multiple levels of meaning are in competition with one another. They're no, they're as, unified. As, as moderns, we always want to say, well, what's the real meaning? Okay, this is the allegorical meaning, this is the anagogical meaning, but what's the real meaning? What's the literal meaning, right? But for the medieval, that is a non-question. That's, an, that's a lunatic question, because they're all literal meanings, because literal just means of the word. And they're all meanings of the word, right? Um, so to pay, I'm sorry, did you, did you have a couple more things to say? No, keep going. I don't, I don't mean to cut you off. Okay, so just responding to what you talked about, the multiple levels of meaning, this is why medieval art is so weird looking to us, right? A lot of these medieval paintings where we say, oh, there's no perspective, that's not because they lost the technical ability to make perspective. It's because they were not interested in that. What they were trying to get across was the fact that all these things are happening at the same time, right? All these levels of meaning are at the same time. So the painting, they're just putting it all in the same flat thing so that your eye is saying they're all equal. No, one's not in front of the other. One's not in the foreground and the others are in the background. That's the way moderns think, right? It's all there. All the layers of meaning are there. So they'll, they'll try to show four seasons at the same time or, mm-hmm. or you know, one person in, in a bunch of different um, meanings, right? So, so for, for, yeah, so they, they, don't, they don't come to stories with the same categories that, that we do. Someone said, is it possible to read too allegorical? And I thought that's such a modern question. <laughs> you know, only a modern would ask that, right? Because in, in a modern's mind, literal is one category and allegorical is another category. And we're like, oh, but if we go too far into allegory, are we losing the literal? But that is not a medieval way to look at it. It's all literal. It's all different types of literal meanings, right? But I think it's important. In what you're saying, Angelina, to recognize that even the medievals recognized that there was um, that there was a difference between a literal and an allegorical meaning, but it was all within the broad framework of this is the world that God created, this is the story that God is telling, and within that story, we can un- the, the story of Jonah and the whale can play multiple roles. It can be um, that Jonah was literally swallowed by a literal whale and literally vomited onto a literal beach. Or we can also say that um, that this is an allegory. And that's right. That's right. It needs to be an and, not a but. And we can say that um, 
just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, so the Son of Man also was in the belly of the earth for three days. It's an allegory for the arrival and the, the days of death of Christ's life. It's both of those things, and they're not in competition. It's not an either-or. Exactly. That's exactly right. The example I always give, because I feel like this is the, the one lingering example of medieval thinking that has made its way into modern Christianity, is the example I give is everybody hears a sermon about how marriage, even though it's literally between this man and this woman, and it's literally a promise to be married forever, right? But it's also Christ and the Church. Mm-hmm. And we all know that. We all hear the, the wedding sermons about it, okay? And, and there's no point in saying, well, which one's the real thing? Well, to the people in the marriage, it is real. But it is also mm-hmm. really Christ and the Church, the Song of Solomon, right? Everybody knows how to read Song of Solomon like a medieval. It's like the one holdover. We know that it's literally Solomon, literally writing these love poetry to this woman he's going to marry. But it's also Christ and his love for the church. It's both of those things, and they're not in competition. It's such a modern question to say, well, let's, let's get the archaeologists out here. Let's find out if this tribe really existed, and did it really go on this path? And like That's meaningful to a modern. That is beyond irrelevant to a medieval person. That's just not how they would obsess about it. They were wanting to connect the meaning to the transcendent reality, right? So that's what anagogical is. It's connecting... Everything in the universe that you can experience with the senses to its transcendent meaning. Um, and I think that's one of the ways that you respond to what you were saying earlier, that the, for the modern, it's all about content. For which tree? In which sense, right? But the medieval, which, and, they're, they're, and, and they have a lot in common with Plato here, the medieval is always trying to connect the, the material thing to its transcendent, you know, Plato would say, ideal version, right? They're always connecting it to the greater reality. Mm-hmm. So I want to go that back. That would be their concern. So I want to go back to the question you just uh, referenced. You don't think then that it is possible for us to read an O'Connor story too allegorically? Well, it depends what you mean. Okay, allegory is one of those words that has been redefined thanks to Bunyan, right? John, Pilgrim's Progress is not a medieval allegory, and one of and the this, reasons this question, why Lewis that question and was Pol- from Katie, by the way, we got to give her credit too. Okay, um, so one of the reasons that Tolkien and Lewis rail against quote-unquote allegorical readings of their works is because they're specifically talking about John Bunyan. Don't one-to-one me. Don't try to figure out, you know, I've read people say, you know, Lord of the Rings is about World War II, and this guy is Hitler, and, you know, you, know, you hear all these crazy theories, right? Um, and, and, and Tolkien was like, don't do that. And Lewis said the same thing, this is not an allegory. But they're, they are allegories. They're just not modern allegories. They are totally allegorical in the medieval sense, which, which by that I mean that there's multiple layers of meaning and the books can be connected to a transcendent reality. But So it depends what you mean. I would totally agree that if you want to chop up a Flannery O'Connor like it's a one-to-one code and you're trying to break the code, then you know, don't do that. That will ruin <laughs> the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you mean allegorical in the sense that you're trying to connect what she's saying to this other reality, which really one way to do it is to say, this is like this, right? So you're not saying Aslan is Jesus. You're saying Aslan is like Jesus, and Aslan is like Jesus in this way, right? Um, I run into that a lot with my students at the very beginning when I start teaching them, when I start talking about Christ figures. Almost immediately someone will say, well, how can this be a Christ figure? He committed a sin. Like, okay, well, you're not understanding what a Christ figure is, right? It's just someone who's like Christ in these ways, right? Moses is a Christ figure, but he so, obviously sinned. 
Would you say that to read, if we wanted to keep our eye on reading O'Connor anagogically, then that that's where reading it in search of, I can't, I think you use the word mystery, like reading it in terms of the mystical um, and the mysterious, um, that, that, that to read it anagogically is to keep an eye out for those things, to allow those things mm-hmm. to, to exist in our world without trying to explain them. Yes. Yes. And, and always trying to connect things to the deeper reality, which it, it's not an either or. Well, then why were that's, you so upset about the glasses balance. conversation, the glasses scene in judgment day? That just popped into my head. <laughs> can I can I just can I try to articulate why? Because I think that we had the same complaint, Angelina. I mean, I was kind of joking, but yeah, go ahead. I was just giving I mean, Angelina a hard time. It's not that Angelina has um, any objection. Please tell me if I get this wrong here, Angelina. It's not that Angelina has any objection to um, Flannery O'Connor inserting glasses as an allegory slash symbol is something kind of like that stands outside of the strict realism of the story. The problem was that it just was not well formulated. It just kind of just got plunked into the middle of this story without any sort of preparation or follow-up. And thus the symbol, um, O'Connor just didn't prepare us for the power of the symbol. Is that right, Angelina? That is exactly right. Like if I if I ran into that in C.S. Lewis, I'd be right there with, yeah, put on those magic glasses. What do you see? You see a person's soul in humanity. I would have been totally rocking with that, right? But I just wasn't. It was such a juxtaposition that I kept thinking, did she mean to come back and add that he stuck some glass in there? Like, <laughs> <laughs> and I know it's funny because it seems like Angelina just went all literal, but I felt like I was unprepared for that. Yeah. So no, good job, Tim. That's a scary thing to speak for me. <laughs> So let's, <laughs> let's, let's move on to a few more questions. Graham wants to know how Tim manages the microphone and the laptop with such tiny, tiny hands. Yeah. You'll have to understand. I wanted to know that too. You'll have to go um, to, to see the picture that Graham posted along with this. So, um, <laughs> that picture But seriously, Tim, how do you do it? Graham clearly has too much time on his hands if he's in Photoshop. <laughs> Photoshopping Tim's Facebook photos. I don't think that was photoshopped. Um, <laughs> uh, That's we, it. When we get to Austin, I'm gonna keep saying, "Keep your hands where I can see them." <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. Uh, well, I want to ask this. Go into this one other question. Actually, someone did ask me to explain the snake story. <laughs> So this is how the snake got into my home. I got a text while, or no, I got like seven straight calls while we were recording last week. And my wife knows that we record at two o'clock on Fridays. And so I didn't notice them at first. And then I texted back and I was like, what's up? And then she just kept calling and kept calling. And then she texted me and said, call me back. Um, and then uh, actually just said, call back. <clears throat> and so I called her on the air. Tim and Angeline were sitting there and I called her and uh this, some some it was like a rat snake had gotten into the house, but she said it was like four feet long. It was pretty pretty big for a rat. You know, I guess that's normal rat snake size. But I think what had happened, and and by the time I even got there, it had gone away. Um, it went into a closet in the bathroom and then went out the house. But what I figured out is that we had had a plumber over, and there was a problem with you know water pooling under the lining of the tub in the boys' bathroom, and so he had pulled off 
some drywall or something in the closet that protected or didn't protect, but just, you know, separated the crawl space under the house from that closet. And he had not put it back. So there was this big opening, which I probably lost a lot of air conditioning through as well. Um, <laughs> but I really, so the snake had probably just come right in there. So then I just had to, I just nailed that, that, um, that actually probably wasn't even drywall. I just nailed that back on and, uh, we haven't seen it since, but that, you know, is a lot less interesting story than it could have been. I will say that, but the snakes are out in, in force this year. You know, the mild winter, they're all, you know, oh. came out of hibernation early. Um, and we did have a mouse problem for a while. So that snake was probably clearing out some mice for me, which I'm appreciative of. We are moving in two weeks. So that, that, you know, she's now ready to get out of the house. <laughs> 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 so that, so there's that, that question. Scared me. Okay. Let's ask, let's answer this one by Hannah. She asks whether you guys can give an Amazon review a defense of O'Connor. So she says, could you give a short overview of why she is worth the time, succinct enough to post in a comment section in response to Amazon review criticisms from people who couldn't get through one short story or found her work disgusting, perhaps even respond to specific reviews, um, such as one one one-star review, which said, or uh, she says every one of the more recent one-star reviews was titled every story was an offensive downer and couldn't understand how O'Connor could quote, think up such disgusting things to write about that sort of thing. So how would you respond in a paragraph or a few sentences to something like that? I mean, obviously you can just say you don't get her, but don't say that. I'll say that you guys say something better. This is, this is Hannah. Hannah said this. Yeah. Hannah asked that question. I love questions. Shout like out! Shout out to Hannah. Hannah takes all of my online intensive classes. So shout out to Hannah. Oh, nice! Thanks for your money, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> Hope you're having a good time with Angelina. Um, <laughs> go, go on, Tim. Give it a shot. Give it a shot. I feel like you have there is something on the tip of your tongue, although I can't see it. <laughs> Come on, Timbo. Do it. Do it. <laughs> This is not going to be as eloquent as I want it to be. And I always hope, like probably all of us, that my eloquence matches my passion. But it's just so rarely the case. I often feel myself getting stupid when I am more passionate about something. And I'm just so, I feel so strongly about the power of Flannery O'Connor's writing. And in part of its power, I think the, the greatest thrust of her writing is that she recognizes that internal transformation is all like big internal transformation, like becoming, coming to belief in like the God of the universe is always violent. It's never sweet and easy. And everyone wishes it were not the case. Everyone wishes that it were not so and, it, and I don't mean that it requires physical violence. I think that Flannery O'Connor uses physical violence to grab our kind of like the attention of our inner person. Um, but if I saw a one star review on Amazon complaining that it was a downer or that it was dark or that it was violent, I wouldn't spend a ton of time trying to talk the one star reviewer um <laughs> you'd be like yeah uh-huh yeah you you if you cannot understand why this is so vital to her stories what happened oh gosh then you don't have the eyes to see 
that I, I, that sounds totally dismissive, and I but, don't mean to be callous. But. Okay, but how do you convince? So we ran into this, right? Oh, Angelina looks like she disappeared on us. How do you convince um, someone who is um, having this trouble to keep reading because they didn't even finish one story, or do you just you wash your hands of them? I, yeah, I wouldn't want. Okay, I'm here now. I've leaned in that direction. Say that again, sorry. I would. You're talking to me or Angelina? You, you, Tim. I would not want to wash my hands of them, even though my my answer just a second ago might sound kind of dismissive. Um, I would urge the one star reviewer to do the most charitable thing that a reader can do, which is put himself or herself below the writer, meaning allow the writer's intent and words to assume a superior position <laughs> and allow yourself as the reader to be in the place of the student and allow yeah. the position of the writer step into Flannery O'Connor's world. Just risk it. You have to take that risk. And um, so what is the pathway into that world? I think that she, for me, her best stories are, they're almost entirely poetry, meaning every single word matters. Mm -hmm. Every single word matters and every single word suits the whole and every single word if you remove one word, like we said last week or the week before, if you remove one word, the entire story is diminished just by one word. She's that much of a craftsman, and her craft is jarring, violent, but beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you can see it unless you give yourself – unless you give her permission to be your teacher. We're not good – in the 21st century in America, especially maybe the world over, I don't, I'm not familiar with the whole world over, but um, we're not good at taking the risk of being offended or that being offended is okay sometimes. Like, if we can't read something or, or trust someone enough because, you know, something is an offensive downer, um, mm -hmm. then we've got a problem. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, therefore we are not good at saying to a writer, you are smarter than I am. Um, I trust you or yeah. you are a craftsman. I trust you, you know? Yeah. Um, Angelina, would you, would you have anything to add to an Amazon review of, of, that, of that sort? Well, I think, I think Tim takes these things way more seriously than I do. I probably would say something like pass the Soma. Everything's going to be all right. You know, <laughs> 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 but actually while you were talking, I was thinking I'm, 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 finishing up my modern lit class right now we're reading bradbury's fahrenheit 451 and and while while you're talking i'm thinking of the scene when when montag walks in and the women are watching tv right and they're having their just total inane conversation where they're just in complete denial like the fact that people are dying in wars and you know basically they're just on the soma right they are pretending yeah. that everything's great even though it's clearly not Many of them have had suicide attempts, right? Um, so clearly there's a lot of pain and suffering in the world, but they are refusing to cope with it. They're trying to be, stay distracted from it. And so Montag pulls out that book of poetry and starts reading it. And even though they don't understand anything it says, they start crying. 
Is it Dover Beach that he's reading? Yes, yes, yes. It's Dover Beach, yes. And they start crying, and then she gets angry and says, why would you want to read a book that made you cry? Oh, man, yeah. Well, I mean, in that case, you just don't get books. Yeah, well, no, but that's right. I mean, I feel like we don't come to a book asking it to do what a book is supposed to do, right? We want happy fun time. We want angry birds. We want to be distracted instead of having a mirror held up to us because what we're going to see is not very pretty, and that's what we're upset about. I mean, I don't understand how anybody who has a pair of eyes can say about Flannery O'Connor. How could someone think up disgusting stuff like this? I'm like, do you not watch the news? I mean, you probably watch Game of Thrones. Like, what's your deal? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) What universe are you in where you think someone has to make up disgusting stuff? It's every, it's all around us. You know, I think part of this is the nature of reading itself. Um, Like, there is something about reading which makes us, which is so much more active which causes us to make judgments in a way that I think movies and TV don't. Like TV is, if you are doing it the way most of us do it, TV, watching TV and movies is a passive, essentially a passive mm-hmm. thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I try very hard to watch movies and TV um, in an active way, like I read. Um, and oh I, yeah, and I think I, you do. And I studied that in, in college and that was, you know, for that reason. But most of us sit there passively. and In fact, most of us read passively now. But by its very nature, reading demands that we put a certain amount of activity in it, which lends itself to making judgments. Yeah. So we well, can look at something... Nonsense, yeah, it's that nonsense idea that we read to escape reality. I have never understood that. I Me read neither. to jump right into the heart of reality. That's what reading is. So if, you, if you're looking for a distraction from reality and escape, you know, no. don't Flannery O'Connor. People don't read, in my opinion, this is my take on that, people don't read to escape reality they say they do but people read to enter into a different reality um and those are those are different things um we say it's to escape our lives as they are now which is probably more accurate than to escape reality i mean really what we're trying to find is a reality that we'd rather be in when when we when we read for that purpose um, yeah but let's let's we're we're over an hour now let's Let's David, can I mention one more thing this yeah yeah go ahead back on what you just said you guys are probably familiar with the um with Marsha McLuhan, who is a yeah. media theorist. I think he probably died in the 80s or 90s. Yeah. He talks about how different media have different temperature. And he calls television, I think he calls it cold or cool media. And he calls reading hot media. And that sounds a little bit counterintuitive because if you're watching a television show, um, there's all this activity that's happening on the screen, and that might make you think hot media. It's active. But what he's really talking about is what it does inside of you. And just totally to back up your point, David, watching television demands less of me imaginatively and personally than does reading Flannery O'Connor, than reading a, a demanding book. Because when I read a demanding book, I have to fully engage in creating this world that she has kind of linked me into. And I'm not just imagining what it looks like. I'm not just imagining the landscape of Spanish moss hanging from the trees in Savannah. But I'm also putting myself inside the story with these characters. And I'm, and I'm responding along with them. I am So just if you could watch the cognitive activity of someone reading a Flannery O'Connor story and someone watching Game of Thrones, the cognitive activity um, 
I suspect in the Flannery O'Connor story is high. It's hot. The brain and the soul is hot when reading a Flannery O'Connor story. Game of Thrones, meh, tepid. Maybe they'll get kind of like alarmed when there's a sudden moment of an outburst of violence. But otherwise, the activity inside us watching Game of Thrones is small compared to reading a Flannery O'Connor short story. I, I do think that... Um, so, if we were doing it properly, watching movies and TV would be much less tepid, as you put it. it. would be much hotter. Because there's, you know, visually, there's so much to be seen. Like, a, a truly great filmmaker crafts things in a way that a great novelist does as well or a great story writer there are levels of meaning there are you know each individual shot means something specific and they're crafted in a very specific way they're not random just like a great mm. sentence is not random but we can get away with not caring um with not not noticing that kind of thing probably more than we can um in books but that said the nature of art itself is that it's not that that art moves us in mysterious ways regardless of our degree of education our level of education mm-hmm. of that particular mm-hmm. art so i don't know a lot about painting my sister does but i she's studying at oxford so she's going to go into a museum say she goes into a museum like the met right which is not a, a museum that she probably would enjoy because it's you know you know modern right so it's not her favorite thing but she's going to go in there and she's going to be able to critique the work in there or really any museum, but especially in a museum like that. She's going to be able to critique it and judge it um, in an educated way. Whereas I'm going to go in there and I'm going to, my experiences are going to be largely um, just purely uh, gut responses, right? And those gut... And, and thus, David, she, her internal activity is going to be much higher than yours is. Is that what you're asserting? Right, yeah. So, so because she's been educated that way, she understands what she's looking at you know, there's going to be a higher level of, of that part of the, you know, if you, you mentioned looking just at the brain, I suspect there's going to be a, a hotter, hotter, uh, marking of synapses sparking yes. or whatever. Um, yeah. but there's going to be something, you know, I'm going to, I'm still going to experience it, but it's going to be in a different way. And similarly, like if I watch, if I watch a movie or a TV show that's done really well, like think of one of the greatest movies of all time. That's just, that's just crafted in a really brilliant way. There's things that I know to look for. And that I know about, yeah, that maybe one of my students doesn't. And so he typically watches it on a gut level, right? He or she is going to watch Spider-Man or Star Wars or whatever on a gut level. But someone who's educated in it is going to watch it with an eye for craft. And th- watching it with an eye for craft is not inherently better, in my opinion, than watching it on a gut level. Just like reading O'Connor the way we did, you know, with an eye for craft is not inherently better than reading it on a gut level. But what it can do is it can help us experience it and it can help us understand it in a way that allows us to experience that mystery of it. Like with the, and that's why we educate our children to read well, right? Because we teach right. them to ask the right questions, to see the right things, because when they do that, um, they're going to be able to go beyond the obvious one-to-one correlations, for example, of allegory. They're going to be able to go into the deeper mysteries of it because they know the questions to ask. Um, and the same thing is true of movies and books and all that, I think. But does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. And I want to I piggyback on something Tim was saying earlier. Um, I think he was using the word trust, that you have to trust Flannery O'Connor. And I, I think that that speaks to a larger cultural issue we have where we are um, suspicious of authority. Um, and so we, we're very egalitarian, right? We want to come as one reader to one book. Okay? And so we look at the canon 
And the canon should be a source of authority, right? That great minds across thousands of years have all agreed that there is something worthy in this book. And that should mean something to us, right? And so we submit ourselves to that. We humble ourselves. So if we pick up Shakespeare and we can't make heads or tails of it, my first impulse as the reader is to think the problem is me, right? Yeah. Problem's not Shakespeare, the problem's me. And so from there, then I am compelled to try to educate my, you know, I, I come to books and really this is my mental dialogue I have. And I come to a book and I think if there's a goodness in here, I'm going to find it, right? And sometimes it takes a long time, <laughs> but I'm committed to the process. Whereas I think a, a more modern person with its distrust of authority, with its egalitarian things, picks up something and if it doesn't, you know, make itself obvious to them on a, on a first quick read. They're like, ah, oh, this is junk, and they toss it, and that's that. And they don't feel any obligation to submit themselves to it. So that's just a larger, yeah, but larger it go- cultural issue. I think it goes beyond that. There's obviously that, but it also goes, it's symptomatic of the way we educate, too. Because oh, we haven't taught people how, you know, we haven't taught people to be patient in how they absolutely. experience and experience absolutely. art. We haven't taught them to ask the right questions. Um, and, and that's why, you know, reading really great books with in a community of people who care about it and can teach you to ask the questions and we'll ask them along with you is so important. Absolutely. Um, okay. I always tell my students, you know, you, you can't expect a treasure to just give up its gold. You don't walk along the beach and just find the gold. You have to dig for it, right? You have to, mm. to find the map. You got to go through the process. You got to dig for it. You got to work for it. The greater yeah. the treasure, the more you have to work. Hmm. Okay. Let's do some rapid fire type questions. Now we're running out of time here. We're over an hour and 50, we're at an hour and 15 minutes now. My friends, Trevor and Christina, they share a Facebook page. I don't know who this is. I'm guessing it's Christina. Um, she asks, if you had to choose one of the aging parents in Flannery O'Connor to live with and take care of, who would you rather have? <laughs> That's a great one. She That's says, personally, I'd take Julian's mom any day. I think I'll reread these stories right before my mom or mother-in-law comes to live with us. Then it'll seem easy in comparison. <laughs> So, all right. One of the aged parents, aging parents to live with oh, I, and take I care of. The, I, want the mom, uh, I want the mom from comforts of home. I want somebody to take care of me while I'm just in my room reading and um, <laughs> writing. <laughs> Tim, what about you? You know, I would probably choose her also. Part, part of the reason that I would choose her is because, well, I'll back up. I might also choose Julian's mom. It, the question kind of allows us to bracket one of the main problems that the character is dealing with, like one of the sins of the character. And Julian's mom's racism would probably be an irritant to me, but it wouldn't stop her from like making great meals. <laughs> you know, I mean, I hate it. It's like really, or a being, or being, a, or being a generous mother. And that's where the complexity of some of these characters mother, right. comes in like that. You know, we could talk a lot about how the complexity of these characters plays into that yep. that there's yep. they, they have you know like any human being they've got these issues but they also have things that are good about them yeah <clears throat> who, who would you choose david maybe the comforts of comforts of home one um maybe the enduring chill mother that might be maybe i don't know that's a good question that's a great question okay yeah. here's one if angelina stanford had to go on a date with one of the Con- o'connor's characters who would she choose this is from caitlin <laughs> I love it. Ah, uh, the misfit, so he could just shoot me right at the beginning and get it over with. <laughs> yeah, but he didn't do it at the beginning. He let, he, <laughs> he makes you wait. That's a good question. I like this question. Yeah, that's a great question. Okay, here's another one. Which of the young 
typically men in this story. Tim, I want to. I'll ask you this one. Uh, yeah. Tim, which of the young men in this story, uh, in these stories, do you most sympathize with, or for, Ooh. or maybe empathize for, whichever way you want to look at it? Like, which of them is most? You know, you kind of you kind of can can get where they're coming from a little bit, even if you're like it's like the dark side of yourself. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Can we? Can you guys help me remember? So. So I can't remember anyone's name. I'm well, just throwing a Well, there's Julian. There's the enduring chill kid who comes home, and um, uh, there's Shepard from um, the lame shall enter first. There's the guy from um, uh, the comforts of home. The historian, yeah, Thomas. Uh-huh. You know, uh, Asbury is I'll, the enduring be, chill one. Asbury, yes. I'd probably oh. choose Julie. Go ahead, go ahead. There's also Parker from Parker's Back. Oh, right. I, I think I would probably most easily empathize with Julian, not because I have a lot of... Um, it seems to me like Julian has a hard time loving without coercing. I mean, he he... He wants to change his mother. Um, and I think his complaint against his mother, I think, is a legitimate complaint. But, um, you know, <laughs> I'm being totally candid with everyone, like all of our listeners. <laughs> I just I'm a judgmental person. I can't. I would not have about- known that. Are you oh, kidding me? Oh, my God. Oh yeah, no. no! Tim is totally judgmental. You should hear him after every show when he texts me about oh, no, you. No, don't, David. Don't, David. Don't. That's not true. I mean, I'm, like, I'm still fear that. Do you know how fragile I am? Don't <laughs> <laughs> you? Oh man! I'm oh, man. contract right now. The next few episodes are going to be gold, dramatic <laughs> gold. Uh, no, I just, I, I seriously, I will wake up. I, this is how I can tell when I have not slept well. I'll be driving down the street, and every car that passes me or is in front of me is being uh, shepherded by some ab, you know, just somebody who's breaking all the laws of traffic. <laughs> What's wrong with them? And then I'll be like, "What is wrong with you, dude? Like, what is wrong with you? You are burying the lead. You still have your car." <laughs> I do still have my car. Oh, oh! I just want to tell you guys a story. I know one at a time. I'll if, just if, anybody who's been listening for a while will remember the Tim's uh, motor motor vehicle adventures. I had a motor vehicle adventure on Friday. It was a good one. It resulted <laughs> in a very happy ending. Go, I'm judging you right now go, for that story. Go for it. A young woman when I was turning into a parking lot from um, the street, decided that she was going to back up in the middle of traffic and she decided to back up as I was turning behind her and she backed into my left quarter panel. Now, I've been thinking it might be time for Tim to like... Get a new left quarter panel? I need a new back left quarter panel. Can you hook me up, David? Can you hook me up? Maybe to get a car that doesn't have a universal key. (laughs) (laughs) that's right so long story short i was thinking oh you know what you know maybe this will be you know like a 600 a 600 dollar settlement with her insurance company 
and I'll be able to sell the car and pocket the money and I'll be able to discount the total cost of the car because of the accident. But still, it'll be like a net gain. And I'm thinking, this is a $600 repair. Do you guys have any idea what the repair is going to cost? $4,000? Yeah, your car is made of fiberglass. It's all gone now. $1,900. Hmm. Is that more than the value of the car? (laughs) It's probably equal to the value of the car. But I'll still be able to sell the car. It's kind of, yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you, I guess. That was a moment of dark grace for you, Tim. <laughs> that was a moment of dark grace. Glad you accepted it. That was great. So proud of you. Okay, a few more rapid fire questions and then we're going to go. These are actually like, just answer them quickly. Which story would you say you have grown more fond of throughout the last nine weeks? Man, this is a great question, too. Don't, I don't, oh, don't, don't think about it too much. Just gut reaction. Parker's back. Parker's back. Which story would you, after having read these nine stories of these nine stories, which one would you tell people to read first? Has that changed at all? Oh, probably not. I'd probably still go with Revelation. I'm still a strong believer in laying out a framework to understand stories, and I think Revelation does that. I might, I really thought I might change to Parker's back. I'm not fully there yet. I think I would stick with Revelation, but I might switch. Which story gives you the most shivers? Which, like, in thinking about them, which one makes you just kind of like, you know, the the shiver run up your spine? A view of the woods. The lame shall enter first. Which story would you say you like the least of these nine? Aside from Judgment Day. <laughs> no, it's fine. You can say that. Yeah, Judgment Day. Yeah. Uh, What was I going to just ask? Shoot. (laughs) Um, Which story would you say you don't understand? Like, other than Judgment Day, which story would you say you need to spend more time with to really get your head around it? Ooh. Man, I love these. We have such great listeners. Yeah, these are all from me. (laughs) <laughs> oh, we have say, such a I great host. Didn't, didn't see these at all. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, I mean, the last few have been for me, so I'll take credit for them. I don't. I don't know. I, I feel like I could jump into all of them and think more about all of them. But which one do you, is, gives you the most like cognitive dissonance? Hmm. A view of the woods, I think. Mm, that's probably me too actually yeah yeah that's Dave, because because you don't is it the whole topic that we discussed during the podcast is um the granddaughter of figment or is she real is that what gives you dissonance yeah and i just don't know that i don't know if it works as well and all that kind of stuff yeah. so <clears throat> um all right well this has been you know flannery o'connor we're done I'm just so excited that our readers are like, yay, Flannery right now. Yeah, I'm I too. saw that. That was just really, I just, I'm so proud of you guys for hanging in there. I know it was tough, but you didn't take the Soma. Right. <laughs> I'm so proud of you. You stayed off the Soma. <laughs> David, I think having a Q&A at the end of this, I, that was so much fun. 
I think we'll do that for every. Like we'll do one at the end of Brideshead as well. Um, and yeah, of course, speaking so of which, fun. remember we are going to talk about the first, the prologue, and the first three chapters of uh, Brideshead Revisited two weeks from today. Next week we are going to read, well, discuss uh, the line the witch in the wardrobe, which won our literary children's lit challenge. We're going to talk about that kind of big picture, like why has it lasted, what does it mean to us, stuff like that. Probably about you know forty five fifty minutes on that, and then the week after that we'll we'll dive right into Brideshead. So get reading, um, people. Uh, David, do you have an opinion about this debate about the American versus English editions of Brideshead? Nope. I was literally just going to say, you know, follow your bliss. Okay, because I already have a copy, and I think it's the English copy. Um. Yeah. No. No. I, no, no. I have the American copy. The English one's the edited one. I have the American one. Um. The one that was not edited. Yeah, and I don't. I mean, it doesn't. I mean. I, I kind of would say don't read the edited one because it's not like the original book. I, I, you know, writers can go back and change things and sometimes they're like, maybe not for the, sometimes they're for the better. Sometimes they're for the worse. Sometimes they're vanity. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. Um, but we'll talk about, we'll talk about that. Um, or don't forget about Roman roads media, uh, Roman roads media.com. If you want to go look at their 16 units of old Western culture with Wes Callahan, make sure you comment on the Facebook page to choose one you would like to win. Um, and then, of course, if you have not subscribed to either the network or to this show on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get podcasts, please make sure you do that. Um, that, that helps us out a lot. Leave comments, um, leave reviews, leave star reviews, what, you know, however that works on your, you know, your app or your tool that you use to get podcasts. Uh, we really appreciate that. It goes a long way. Uh, Tim and Angelina, any final thoughts before I kick you off for another week? I'm just really filled with th- – I really – feels really strongly it's a privilege to do this podcast with the two of you it's a privilege to have such like such thoughtful engaged listeners i don't th- i'm i do not take that for granted oh absolutely it, yeah amen no it's not just a privilege. like i feel a responsibility like do you feel it yeah like, the more oh, that yeah. i engage with them on the facebook page i'm like oh man i can't be faking it i gotta I, bring my a game these i feel I feel less of a responsibility because they'll correct us if we say something wrong. (laughs) (laughs) You're right. I'm just going to start winging it and then let them sort it out on the group. They're they're chapter and versing us right now. Yeah, I know. I don't know. In 1947, when Flannery was 10 years old, she had a dream. And I'm like, ah, you lost me. I don't. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think the, I heard some people, saw some people say that they were uh, nervous about Brad's head and some people said they'd started it and hadn't, couldn't get into it. And I think this is going to be another really fun one. Um, you know, it's a it's a really amazing novel um, that is very layered and dense and complicated, and the characters are really rich. And I'm really excited about that. It's one of my favorites, so that's going to be fun. And I haven't read it in a long time, so oh, I haven't read it either in like twenty something years. So well, I mean, not I didn't read it when I was ten, so it's been longer <laughs> than that for me. Fine, um, fine, David, fine, go there, go there. <laughs> oh wait, sorry. Sorry, I didn't mean to. I didn't, mean, I, I, didn't, two, I didn't mean to imply when it. When I was two, I read it for the first mm. time. I was advanced. You were very advanced. Yes, I didn't mean to imply anything there, Angelina. I apologize. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, me too. All right. Well, um, for Angelina Stanford, who is older than me apparently, and for Tim McIntosh, who also <laughs> is older than me, full disclosure, uh, I am David Kern saying farewell here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. Thanks so much for discussing Flannery O'Connor with us. We look forward to talking to you on the Facebook page. See you next time.